Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us for another session of remote Bible teaching with Dr. Larry Crabb, brought to you by LargerStory.com. I'm Kev Crabb. Thanks for joining us today. This is the third part of a four-part series, and we are super excited you're with us today. And this is going to be a fun, fun one for us. It's actually uh, Larry talking about Job. Um, and I know, Dad, you've taught this book a lot of times, but we've had some great conversations in the last couple of days about what you're going to be unpacking. So I don't want to take any of your time now. Um, fire away, Dad. All right. I appreciate it. Yeah. First, I want to give you a few introductory thoughts as we now move into what everybody recognizes is the unsettling book of Job, God's 18th of his 66 love letters written to us to encourage us in Job. Well, in this message, I'm going to be exploring what I'm calling the Job experience. Most of you are somewhat familiar, maybe fully familiar with all that Job went through, which I'm calling the Job experience. But I want to look, look at him at that, that experience to see what bearing Job's experience might have on our understanding of what it means to live the Christian life. But first, to set the stage for how we can read this gloomy book as a love letter, I want to spend a few minutes um, looking at one of the most badly misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. So bear with me. The connection of this verse with the story of Job will become clear a little later in this message. Now, the verse I have in mind is in John's Gospel, chapter 10 and verse 10. Some of you know right away what that verse is. It's a pivotal verse, and it's pivotal to what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus is plainly telling us why he bothered to leave this happy life in heaven, why he became a very real human being, why he lived a sinless life and then died a sinner's death, a gruesome death, and to realize, when you think about it, that I really misspoke. It wasn't a bother at all. I said why he bothered to come. It wasn't a bother. It was a response to a, to a call, a willingly accepted calling from his father. And when you think about it that way, it tells us a lot about who Jesus is. Well, once this Jesus, who embraced the call of his father to come to earth and really live a miserable life in the last three years particularly, and mostly in his last couple of days, once when he was speaking to a group of people who couldn't understand his teaching, Jesus said this in John 10. Here's the verse. I came that they, who's they? We're referring to his followers. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's what he said. It's a misunderstood verse. Why? Well, had I been in that crowd, and maybe you as well, I'd have asked, all right, you have the abundant life you want to give me. What's it abundant of? What's the abundance that we're talking about here? And, and I'm asking that question now, as I think I would have if I'd have heard Jesus in the, back in those couple thousand years ago saying that. And I would have assumed, the one that comes naturally to my thinking, which I presume the crowd was feeling, that a life that's going to be provided by a good a powerful, a loving, a generous Lord would be abundant in blessings. It would be a good life. And the good things of life that would make my years in this world a really pleasant experience. That's what it ought to be. That ought to be the abundance of the abundant life. And that assumption, I suggest, is in the minds of many Christians today. But it's a wrong understanding of that verse. Let me say a little more about that. We can realize how wrong it is when you listen to Jesus talking to his father just a couple hours before he died. Now think about this. 
ask yourself a question. What kind of life did Jesus have in mind that he could not give to anyone unless he died, unless he was crucified? And consider this. One sentence that he uttered to his father as he was in the throes of anticipating his infinite miserable torture that he was going to go through, as he was anticipating that, here's what he said to his father. Father, this is eternal life. So he's going to define it now for us. He said, I'm going to give you the abundant life. Well, what's the abundant life? Well, now he tells us, this is eternal life. And by the use of the word eternal, he's talking about a life that can begin now and is going to continue on through all of eternity. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, what's he talking about there? You've read the verse maybe a hundred times like I have. What's really implied in that verse is rather remarkable. What he's saying, if I understand it correctly, is this, that a life lived with a father and son, relational life with these two divine persons, encouraged and made real by the Spirit, the third divine person of the Trinity. Now, that sounds kind of wonderful if you think about it. A life lived in the presence of this perfect community, this perfect, wonderful God. Sounds good. But go back to a verse that he that is quoted in the Bible just a little bit before he, he said that, that the eternal life is, um, is, is knowing God, you know, the only true God in Jesus Christ. Before he said that in John 16, 33, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and here's what he said, and many of you know this verse, as you live in this world, you're going to experience many troubles and sorrows, many trials and sorrows in this world. That's going to be your experience. So a life lived, you got, you got to draw this conclusion, a life lived with the abundance of relating with the, with the Trinity and abundance of relationship with God, that life is going to be a life lived with an abundance of difficulties. Not the most interesting sentence you've ever heard, but we cannot trust we cannot trust God's words, Christ's words, without coming to this conclusion. And here's slide one. I want you to take a look at it. If you really choose to believe that Christ knows what He's talking about, and of course He does, then this conclusion must come to our minds. Look at it carefully. The life Jesus came to give is abundant in the awareness of God as our supreme value during good times no matter good, no matter how good, and bad times, no matter how bad. Now think about that. Leave it on the screen for just a moment. The life Jesus came to give us is abundant the awareness of God as our supreme value during good times. In other words, I'm going to want to know the value of God. I'm going to believe in the value of knowing God that's far greater than all the good things that life gives me. And I'm going to still enjoy the value that I have in God in the awareness of who he is and that he is with me. That's going to become real to me, even in the worst of times. Now, to put that same thought a little bit differently, because it's a very important thought, the life Jesus came to give us in this world is not guaranteed to be a life even abundant enough in blessings that would make our lives relatively comfortable, well-received by others, and pleasantly satisfying. Now, don't misunderstand me. We are free, of course, to enjoy whatever blessings come our way. I've got plenty, and I hope you do too. But we are not free to think of them as what we were created to most enjoy. The life that Jesus came to give us is the life that was going to satisfy the deepest thirst in our souls. More about that next week when we look at Song of Songs. 
But after listening to my messages these last couple of weeks, actually all six weeks, Jeremiah and now a couple of messages on, on Ecclesiastes and now Job, uh, a good friend wrote the following to me in an email. And here's the next slide. In this next slide, I just borrowed one paragraph from an email that a good friend wrote to me. And listen to what he says. The gospel, the gospel is marketed primarily as a means to a better life. He's talking about in our culture today. The gospel is marketed primarily as a means to a better life, a 1010 life, referring to John 1010, of course, where we get to define what 1010 is to us. What's abundant? We'll decide that. When our life doesn't measure up to our perfect 10, disillusionment at best, denial potentially soon follows. Much damage is done to our souls with the perfect 10 teaching. That felt like a very important sense to me. I wanted to share it with a good friend. Now think about this. That marketable gospel is a false gospel. Why? It leads us away from the abundant life Jesus came to give. But the unmarketable gospel, which is marketable only to people who are aware of their deepest thirst, tells us that an abundance of knowing God settles the soul in hope during life's worst moments. And that's the connection between my talking about John 10.10 and what I'm going to now talk about in the story of Job. Think of what I've just said as we now begin to look at the story of Job. The story that begins where God, not quite at the beginning, but pretty close, where God is talking to Satan, rather strange conversation, and he literally gave Satan permission to replace the blessings that Job had been experiencing and properly enjoying with suffering that Job had to endure in order to experience the abundant life of knowing God. And that's going to be a theme of what I'm going to be talking about. Stay with that thought as I continue. So with that in your mind, it's time to see what God might be saying to us in Job's story. So let me begin our look by noticing the ending in the book of Job. We're going to come back to this later, but just to introduce, in the last chapter in the book, chapter 42, Job uttered what many, and I fully agree, are the most beautiful words that we read in the entire book of Job from Job. Listen to what he said. Speaking directly to God, this is what Job said in chapter 42 and verse 5. The next slide reads like this. I had only heard about you before. I had only heard about you before. But now I've seen you with my own eyes. Now, two words strike me as important there. Well, actually more than two. But what's the before? I had only heard about you before. Before what? But now, when? I've seen you with my own eyes. And what he's saying is, I've only heard you, only heard about you, God, before, before suffering ruined my life of abundant blessings. In my life of abundant blessings, when things were going really, really well, I didn't know you, God. I only had heard about you. I could talk about you, but I didn't know you. And those many years of living the abundant life, wrongly defined, probably about 70 years, Roughly that, he was living a good long time in the abundant life. We believe that because you recall, some of you know the book of Job, of course, that the last chapter we're told that after Job came to know God in a new way, then God doubled all his blessings. If he had 5,000 sheep, he got 10,000 sheep. He had 10 kids before, he got 10 more because his first 10 kids were still immortal. So therefore, he doubled by giving Job 10 more. 
But it also says that he gave Job 140 years of life after all this suffering, after he was able to say, I've seen God. And if that's a doubling, then I presume that the first years were 70 in total. For 70 years, or close to that, Job was experiencing a wonderful life that he was thinking was the abundant life. The thing to notice in all that is not the 70 years issue, but it was a long time. But the thing to notice about this is this. During his years of living a good life of blessings, as well as during his years of suffering, Job enjoyed not a relationship with God, but rather the blessings of God. Hear the difference? He enjoyed, he did not enjoy the relationship with God. He didn't know he had one, but he enjoyed the blessings of God. Kind of like a spoiled child at Christmas doesn't care if dad shows up as long as the presents are beneath the tree. It was only after suffering that Job could move beyond hearing about God and tell God himself that God now I see you. That happened after some period of time. We're not told how long, weeks, months, years, we don't know. But after a significant period of suffering, Job said, now, after suffering, after losing all my blessings, I couldn't see you during my blessings, but after they were taken away and I suffered, now I can see God. So think about that. During his good years of enjoying a good life, he had only heard about God. We develop that thought in one more way. In Job's thinking, God's goodness was centered in the things he received from God. God's goodness in his mind was not centered in a relationship with God, but in what he received from God. That's not a relationship. That's exploitation. But now, still in a season of suffering, it's very notable to realize that he was still suffering when he was able to say, now I see God. That happened before the blessings were restored. I've never seen him before, Job is saying. And I believe he then saw God as someone. What did it mean when he says, I, I see God? No, but nobody sees God. So it's a metaphor, obviously, because God, God the Father doesn't have a personal form. We only see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Paul tells us that in Corinthians. When he says, I saw God, I believe what he was saying was, I saw God as someone who would go to any lengths to form me, Job talking. He would go to any lengths to form me into a man who could live in the joy of God's presence. And he saw God before God restored his blessings by a multiple of two, while Job was still scraping boils covering his body, while he was still living on a garbage heap alone and broke. In the middle of that condition, he was passionately excited and saying, God, now I can see you in the middle of his most deplorable condition. Now, As a wise Christian once wrote, God plus nothing is everything. When I wrote that in my notes, I asked myself this question, do I really believe that? God plus nothing is everything? Or am I insisting God plus a bunch of blessings is what I call everything? Well, perhaps a closer look in the Job story might help me believe that God plus nothing really is everything. So let me give you a little brief understanding of the organization, one possible organization of the um, rather lengthy story of Job. The book, I believe, is divided into four sections. Just follow this very simply. Section one, chapter one, verses one to five, a very short section one. We first meet Job living the properly enjoyed life of abundant blessings. Nothing's wrong with enjoying your blessings. He had a great family. 
apparently a loyal wife, 10 good kids, both healthy. He was both a healthy man. He was very wealthy and he was well-respected by all in his culture. Now it's easy to understand why Job could envision, envision nothing better than that. What's better than that version of an abundant life? Everything's going great in my life. Got a great marriage, great family, great money, great health, great reputation, great culture. Everything's really going well. That's the abundant life. It'd be very hard I've never lived a life quite that good, but I've lived a pretty good life in a lot of ways. I had my struggles, as you do and I do. But in the middle of things going really, really well, sometimes hard to imagine that the joy I feel from things going well could ever be amplified, could ever be deeper, could ever be richer. That's section one. Section two is the longest part of the book of Job. Starts in verse six of chapter one, right after we hear how wonderful Job's life was and how good a man he was. Chapter one and verse six, all the way to the last verse in chapter 37, I think it's verse 25, that's section two. And this section begins with God allowing Satan to make Job suffer. God, why would you do that? He told Satan, he allowed Satan rather, to mess up Job's life, Job's life, to take him from an abundance of blessings to an absence of blessings. Agony in both body and soul. Read those 37 chapters. It's a lengthy read, but if you read those 37 chapters, you'll be asking why as you turn every page. That's what I was asking as I reread the book. Job lost it all in section two. He lost his wealth. He lost his health, his children, his loyal wife, his good reputation. And listen to what Job tells you what was going on in him and this godly man. We read in, uh, in, in chapter 1 and verse 9, actually, as God is talking to Satan of all things, he identifies Job as the finest man in the earth. And then he says, you can have a go at him. God, you're puzzling. I don't quite get it. Now, what's happening in Job as he didn't hear this conversation between God and Satan? All he knows was his life turned from wonderful to terrible. And in the next slide, we get a little glimpse of what I believe as you read all of Job's comments in the next, in those 37 chapters, he was saying at least three things, far more, but these three summarize what he was saying. Number one, Job was confused. Why me? What, what, why, 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 is, why is this happening to me? I don't get it. I've been living a pretty good life. Job was confused. Why me? Have you ever asked that? Secondly, Job was in severe pain, so severe that he actually wished he were dead. He had, went even beyond that. He said, I wish I never were born. He was in severe pain. I wish I were dead. And then thirdly, and this comes out in so many verses, Job was angry with God. God, I really don't deserve this. I think you're being a little unfair to me. Now, that's not what he said initially. When his wife said to him, look, you're in terrible pain. Why don't you curse God? That'll be a capital offense. You can't curse God. Then God will take your life, and then you'll be relieved of all your suffering. And Job said, no. I don't believe that. I believe that if we're going to accept good things from God, we accept bad things from God, and I'm going to worship him in the middle of my bad life. And he began that way, but his life went on. He got really confused. He got really troubled. It is with severe pain, and he got really angry at God. Now, add inept counselors, terrible spiritual directors to his troubles, and life gets even worse for Job. Listen to a pompous man named Eliphaz who, like so many helpers today, can't stand mystery, can't stand unexplained troubles. 
this guy and the other counselors as well were trying to explain everything so they could get a handle on what Job could do to get his blessings back because nothing matters more. Here's what Eliphaz said to Job. This is in chapter four, verses eight and nine. Don't have a screen for this, but just listen to the verse. Eliphaz's counsel. My experience, he's talking to Job, my experience shows that those who plant trouble, he's talking about Job, those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. A breath from God destroys them. They vanish in a blast of anger. What he's saying is, Job, I can tell you why you're hurting so bad. You've been sinning. You've got to get on the right terms with God. Then you'll get the blessings back. Through all of section two, the counselor's message was the same. God is punishing you for your sin that maybe nobody knows about, but you do, Job. There can be no other explanation for why you're suffering. Job, you're obviously not innocent. You're obviously not, you're not the good man that everybody thinks you are. You should know, Job, that bad things only happen to bad people. Now, when I was thinking about that, that was the message of Job's counselors. My mind went to a guy that many of you have heard of, Rabbi Kushner, a more recent up in our generation. He had, had he been there with Job, his counsel would have been different than, the, than Job's counselors, but it would have been no better. Why? Well, Kushner was a man who would have begged to differ with the counselors. He had lost his much-loved son in an accident when the boy was a teenager, and Kushner just couldn't handle his grief. It was terrible, but he had to bring God into the picture as a faithful, loyal, good Jew who believed in Almighty God and Jehovah, and he had to try to understand how, how bad things happen to good people, because that was his experience. He was a good person, and bad things happened to him, which made no sense to him. Job's counselor says that never happens. Kushner said, yeah, it happened to me, and I've got to explain that. Here's how we explained it. Kushner was certain he had lived faithful to God. So why this tragedy? Here's what Kushner came to in the book. This is a quick summary of a, of a very detailed book. He had to conclude that God, though still a good God, was not powerful. God was subject in Job's and Kushner's understanding. God is subject to a higher reality that not even God can control, which is the laws of nature. And he really, Kushner really envisioned God as because he's a loving, good God, as trying to figure out what best to do when nature that he couldn't control brought tragedy into people's lives. It caught him unawares, and then God had to come up with some way of comforting people whose life were, were terrible. Were, were terrible. And, and suppose Kushner has said that to Job. I believe the answer that Job would have given would not have been agreement with Kushner, nor with his counselors, obviously. I think he would have said something like this. No, Rabbi, you're wrong. God wants to do me good. You told me that, and I agree with it, because he is good. But he can do me good, because he's not only a good God, he's a powerful God. And Kushner, that's my problem. All this misery makes no sense. I have no idea what a good and powerful God who can control everything. I have no idea why I'm suffering. It makes no sense. I have no idea what God is up to. Job was tormented in his spiritually-minded soul as well as in his body and his loss of other blessings. Now, in one sense, I think we can agree, Job was a man of faith. What do we mean by that? Real faith can survive doubts. Weak faith 
let's now drive people away from God. Job came to God. He didn't quit on God. He came to God with all his questions. He lamented his hard life, but he kept on bringing himself to God with all his burdens, all his fears, all his pain, all his puzzlement, all his frustration, all his confusion, even all his anger at God. He brought God to, he brought all that to God. And the next slide gives us one verse among many, many, many verses um, that lets us see Job's attitude toward God. This is slide number five. Here we have Job saying in Job chapter nine, verses six and eight, listen to what he's saying. It's God who has wronged me. It isn't nature. It isn't Kushner's nature that God can't control. No, it's God who has wronged me. He has plunged my path into darkness. Well, John of the Cross might agree with that. It is God who's wronged me. He has plunged my path into darkness. That's what Job was thinking. And then a few chapters later, in chapter 23, Job cries out, and this is a quote in verse 3, if only I knew where to find God. What's going on in Job? Pain has now continued for a long time. Pain isn't our problem. Ongoing pain is the problem. I can handle a dentist chair because I'm not going to be in there for more than, well, maybe two hours. But when I get out of there and my tooth is fixed, within a couple hours, I can enjoy a steak dinner. Job had no idea about the ending of his pain. All he was doing was struggling. And all I want now, I want to find God. And if I find God, here's what he said. This is a quote. I would go to his court. That's in chapter 23 and verse 3. Now, if you want to, let, let me paraphrase the next few verses. What Job is saying in the next several verses goes something like this. Get me in a courtroom with God, and I would seize my advantage. I would speak my mind. I would defend myself against what I know are God's wrong, false accusations that led him to ruin my good life. I don't deserve this. And I'll tell you what would happen. God would see my point. I'd be acquitted from all the charges God has against me. And God might even have to apologize, Job. I guess I wasn't on duty right then. I'm very sorry that things went this way. Can you forgive me? Is that what Job is actually saying? Pretty close, if not that extreme, pretty close to it. Because I believe that once God hears from me, I want to be acquitted of the charges and all my blessings will be restored. Now, that's the end, or that, that's the way that section 2 ends. In verse 37, chapter 37, that's how Job is still thinking. I want to be in court with God. Well, section 3, chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41, Job has now found God. He said, I want to find God. I want to get in his courtroom. Well, now he's found God. And he's in the courtroom where I suppose, to no surprise to Job, God is both prosecuting attorney and the judge. And after reading, after reading all his complaints and confusion in the previous 37 chapters, it seems pretty clear that Job, when he meets God, there's got to be something going on in him that is full of questions that he assumes he has a right to, a right, right to hear God's answers. God, I got some things I got to ask you, and I really demand that you give me some responses here because things aren't going well, and you're making no sense to me. So could you explain all this to me? Well, that's not how God works. Have you noticed? Think back, a little quick diversion here, think back to the four Gospels when Jesus was living on earth for those three, well, for, the, for three years of ministry. And it happened a bunch of times where both enemies and followers came to Jesus with questions. Someone actually counted up all the questions that people asked Jesus in those four Gospel records, 
And he came up with over 130 questions that were, that were asked uh, of Jesus. And he made the obvious point, maybe obvious once we see it, that Jesus directly answered only three. Most questions that came to Jesus, just like a questioning Job coming to God in chapter 38, Jesus routinely reversed things and responds to questions with a comment that exposed the challenging motive beneath the questions. Two quick examples. One person said to him, Jesus, shall we stone the adulterous woman or not? Jesus' response, let him without sin cast the first stone. Oh, that's the way God answers questions. And then secondly, who's my neighbor? And Jesus responds, go and be a good neighbor like a good Samaritan. He's reversing things and saying, deal with your soul, with your questions. Don't ask me, don't expect me to figure things out so you can get back to managing life so you can get what you want. That isn't how it works with me. So now in God's presence, with a God who had already heard, knew all of Job's questions that he's been asking for all those 37 chapters, motivated by angry confusion, by complaining pain, and by challenging insolence, there's some expressions in Job that really sound rather insolent, that Job never got the chance to ask those questions. Four long chapters in section three record God asking Job questions, just as Jesus did centuries later in response to his questioners. God, if you read these chapters without any prejudice either way, just objectively, you've got to say that God let loose with a torrent, with an overwhelming flow of questions that Job couldn't possibly answer. Yet, sounding like he was demanding that Job, that Job reply. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. That's how God met him after Job was going through so much suffering. He was still going through the suffering, but now he's in the presence of God. And God says, not comforting words like, hey, I know it's been tough. It'll get better soon. No, brace yourself like a man. I'm going to question you. You shall answer me. Well, God's first question in chapter 38 sets the pattern for the rest in verses in, in verse 4 um, of, of, all, of all of chapter 38. In, chapter, in verse 4 in, in chapter 38, a question is asked that's typical of all the rest of the questions that, that, that uh, God asked Job. Here's the question. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. That's the first thing Job heard from God after all the suffering in which he was still reeling from. The first word from this good, gracious, powerful, merciful, wonderful God, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Why was God so seemingly harsh, even sarcastic? Tell me if you know so much. In the dozens and dozens of questions that God put to Job, I believe we can hear a couple common themes. And to put it in somewhat a colloquial, maybe a slang language, the questions really sound like what he's saying to Job thematically or things like this. Job, you don't know enough to take me on. Job, who do you think you are anyway? Job, do you actually believe that I'm obligated to answer your questions so you can manage life according to your preferences? You don't even know who I am, Job. And now we approach the whole point of Job's experience as a once blessed man, then a suffering man, and now in God's presence, a bewildered man. Why all those questions? Why such jarring, 
merciless questions put to a still badly hurting man? Is this God's love? Hmm. Keep the context in mind before I suggest some thoughts on this. Section one, Job's enjoying a generously blessed life. First five verses. Section two, 37 chapters. God allows Satan to replace all Job's blessings with severe hardships after Satan accuses God that no human being could ever want God. They just like the goodies God provides. They don't want you, God. They just want your blessings. Take away the blessings. He'll curse you to your face. And God says, uh, have you considered Job? You've been looking across the earth to see if anybody wants me. How about Job? He, he loves me. He seems to want me. No, he doesn't love you. He just loves you because you're passing out all the gifts. Take away his gifts. He's going to curse you to your face. That's how, that's how Satan and God were having this chat in the first chapter part of uh, section two. And then section three, God assaults Job with questions he can't answer. And now after sections one, two, and three comes section four, chapter 42, where the point of the whole story comes together, at least a little bit, I think quite a bit. I would have expected that as Job heard these four chapters of impossible to answer questions, I would have expected him to cower in despair. But no, it's not what happened. Remember his comment that I described earlier, and I called it a beautiful comment, a humble comment. Here it is again, spoken after a long season of suffering, a season that's still continuing, but now in the presence of a God asking impossible to answer questions. Here's what Job said in chapter 42. These are pretty close to his final words, three to five. I was talking about things I knew nothing about. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. Now let's just ponder that just for a minute. Job's counselors, like too many Christian leaders today, I fear, thought that they knew enough about life to manage it into the good life of blessings. Have you prayed enough? Have you had your devotions this morning? Have you gone to church faithfully? Have you led a moral life? Are you still living well? Well, if you're living that kind of a life, then you're going to be blessed. You can manage your life if you get rid of all your sin and start leading a noble life. Job was leading a noble life in the first few verses of Job, and his life still went south in a terrible, terrible way. Job knew then, and knew more clearly now in God's presence, that during his good times of blessings and his terrible times of suffering, he realized now that he, he had been talking about God, but never really clearly knew God. He had been talking about how life should work when he knew nothing about the subject. In good times, as sometimes I do, and perhaps you as well, in good times, Job had wrongly assumed that God would continue to keep the good times coming. And in bad times, should they have come in those first five verses, which they didn't, but they sure came later, in bad times, he really believed that God should it was his obligation. He's a good God. He's a powerful God. He should replace suffering with blessings, at least in the sense, at least in the lives of good people. And Job was a good people. But now, things are changing big time. In God's immediate presence, he no longer wants to defend his right to better treatment from God. In verse 6, Job tells us, Job tells God, he's talking to God, and he says, I despise myself. What a switch. 
from despising his life during his season of suffering. I wish I were dead. Now, despising himself as he stands in God's presence. Why, why the shift? What's it all about? Clearly, Job was not wrong for coming to God with his confusion, with his pain, with his anger. We're invited to come to God with who we are, and we're not always in a good place. We're often in a very bad place. He wasn't wrong for coming to God with all of his struggles, but he now realized, and he didn't realize this until he saw God, he now realized he was wrong for coming to God, believing that he had a right to better treatment from God. He despised himself for being so foolish. And then uh, he said this, and here's the key to the whole book. I repent in dust and ashes. But now look at the next screen and see if you can realize why this question is so important in understanding the book of Job. The question that is central to the book of Job. What exactly was Job repenting of? He was the finest man on the earth by God's estimate back in the first five verses, and he handled his suffering by never giving up on God, never giving in to wrong understandings that he was being seduced to believe from Job's counselors. What exactly was Job repenting of? Now, in order to respond well to that question, I need to draw this chat to a close, another couple of minutes. I need to present each of us, me very much, with a choice. I want you to think about this before I try to answer the question, what exactly was Job repenting of? Here's a choice I want you to consider, and I'll consider it with you. Let's suppose, it's unlikely, hypothetical, but let's suppose you had a choice. You had a choice between two things. Would you choose to live a good life of blessings, the life Job richly enjoyed for many years, would you have chosen that kind of a life? Or if you had the choice, you could choose that if you wanted to. In God's idea, he'd say you can choose that if you want, if that were your choice. Or you could choose to, instead of the good life of blessings, you could choose to live the Job experience of suffering. Suffering that was necessary to eventually live in the abundant life that God provides, the abundance of knowing God and a New Testament language of living in the life of the Trinity. Which would you choose, a life of blessings or a life of suffering that led to a different level of intimacy with God? Or am I satisfied with the good life of blessings I have now? And I'm not interested in suffering to get something more. I'm really content with where I am, premature contentment. Let me reframe the question differently. Another slide coming up here. I want you to frame that same question, what choice would you make to live like Job in a season of blessings or like Job in a season of suffering that went to some place from God's perspective, wonderful indeed. Here's the same question experienced or uh, uh, mentioned a little bit differently. Is the Job experience of suffering worth the price of entering the later Job experience of seeing God? Let me say it again. Is the Job experience of suffering that's not the only experience he had. He ends the book of Job seeing God. Is the Job experience of suffering worth the price of entering the later Job experience of seeing God? Are you, am I, are we content with enjoying blessings while merely hearing about God, but never entering into relationship with him in a profound way? Or Am I, are you, so aware of our thirst to see God, to know him more intimately, deeply intimately, 
to know him as our lover and a love relationship with him, am I so aware of that thirst that I would welcome whatever troubles come my way? As an opportunity, as James put it in chapter one, will I welcome whatever troubles come my way as, a, as an opportunity to seize, to value, to welcome, to be glad for. Oh God, I know what you're up to in this suffering. Do your deepest work. Yes, I'm glad the suffering has come. Not because I like suffering, I don't. It hurts, it hurts terribly and I'm miserable, I'm unhappy. But I know you're doing something that I really want that I'm most thirsty for. I wanna know the joy of living in your presence. Is that what I'm really interested in or am I content with the, I got a nice home. I'm speaking to you from my loft where I write my books and where I have a lot of bookshelves here. I read my books. I write, I think. I have a television up here. When I get tired of writing, I put on Law Order, Gunsmoke, something, just to waste my time for a little bit. It's all wonderful. I love my life up here. I love my life in a lot of ways with my wife, with my kids. When I say I don't see them as often as I want, but my grandkids, I got a good life in so many ways. Am I content with that? So content that I'm not aware of my thirst for more? Let me suggest this. None of us will value the misery of suffering until we recognize the danger of blessings. Ponder that sentence. The next slide is going to come up here in just a few seconds. None of us will value the misery of suffering until we recognize the danger of blessings. What is that danger? Well, I suggest it could be put this way. When good things are ours to enjoy, and I hope many of you are enjoying a lot of good things in your life. I really do. When good things are ours to enjoy, we tend to possess our blessings as an entitlement. God, Job's suffering and God's questions brought to surface in Job what he never suspected was going on in him during his years of blessing, a spirit of entitlement. I'm living well. Huh. Well, of course I have God's favor. I'm living well. I deserve God's favor. I've served God well, not perfectly, but faithfully for many years. And I could say that I've served God, not perfectly. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've, I have to have to repent of a lot of things, but I've kind of done pretty well with my 75 years. And I could easily say, you know, God, I don't think I deserve um, cancer. And yet cancer is still alive in my body. Do I have a justified complaint or is that an opportunity? Job repented. He said he repented. Of what? He repented of his entitlement spirit, of his demanding spirit. A spirit of entitlement always leads to demands. God, here's my agenda. We call it prayer. Here's my agenda, God. I will pray for this, and I've led a good life, and I think you should respond in this particular way. A demanding spirit, subtle maybe, comes out of an entitlement spirit. I have no basis for entitlement spirit. Why? Like you, I deserve judgment, but I've been given grace. I deserve hell. Do you believe that? I do, but I'm not going there. I'm going to heaven. Suffering is my opportunity to see my arrogance and despise myself, to see my entitled spirit, and to repent in dust and ashes of, with humble gratitude. And in the process of all of that, seeing in the process of seeing me that way, I'll say I'm going to see God. Let me close with this. If I welcome whatever suffering I go through, and I sure don't want to go through all the suffering Job went through, I really don't, but I've had suffering in a variety of ways. You've had suffering. We're going to have more. 
but the degree that I welcome suffering as an opportunity, is it possible that I will come to know Jesus in a way that he once spoke to his father? As I read John 17, his high priestly prayer before he went to the cross, here's what I hear Jesus saying. This is my paraphrase. This is not verse by verse, of course, but this is my paraphrase. Listen to what I believe I can hear, and this is what it means to see Jesus to hear this and to enter into a relationship with the person that I'm coming to know. Listen to Jesus. Father, your will be done. I must suffer to give them, your people, the abundant life of knowing our love, that you long for them. I want them to know this, that you long for them to know the abundance of enjoying you. And they too, Father, must suffer in hard times, to recognize and repent of their demanding spirit. Only then, in a lifetime of ongoing repentance, will they delight in your eagerness for them to enjoy you and value you more than every lesser blessing. God, Father, that's what you long for. It's going to require my death. Without my death, they will never know your heart. They will never know your love. They will misinterpret your heart, as Job did, as a good heart that simply gives the blessings of life without ever knowing you, but just being able to talk about you, but not really enjoying you, just enjoying your blessings. And then I conclude this thought from Jesus as he's talking to his father. May our followers welcome the spiritually forming power of suffering as they wait eagerly for heaven when they will suffer no more. That is my understanding of the Job experience. Dad, I just got to say that um, Kimmy and I are really enjoying these Saturday night times um, that you've been doing. And um, I got so excited to hear what you were going to say about Job because I've heard you teach this book so many times. Um, but yet you're unpacking it in a little bit of a different way well, that, um, that, 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 that kind of scares me. And I, I, I think there's a lot of people out there that have a lot of questions. And so what I think we're going to try to do, and um, I know we've talked about this um, a little bit, but I think next week after our session, we're going to open it up to a little bit of a discussion group um, and um, open it up to, to you guys who are watching and, and, part, and joining us uh, during these times. Um, with questions, with comments, and you can you can actually talk about everything that we've done for the last few weeks with the Ecclesiastes uh, experience, the Job experience, and then next week we'll talk about Song of Songs experience. So um, I think that's what we'll be doing. So we'd love to have you guys join us on that again next week. And um, Dad, I just think these are these are so fun. Uh, even though the message you're telling us now of embrace suffering in a way to know God that only suffering allows us to know tears. Oh, you've heard it well. I hope I said it well. And I'll tell you, Kep, for me, you know this, I'm older than you by just a couple of years. But in my journey of knowing God now for 67 years, or professing to know God for 67 years, and knowing him as my Savior, I've been saved for a long time. But my, for me, it's still a journey. Even as I was teaching it, I'm thinking, I'm teaching above my head. But I'm teaching where I want to go. At some deep level of my soul, I'm more thirsty to know God that I am to have my life stay pretty comfortable. But that's a thirst in my soul that I don't always get in touch with. 
It's a journey for all of us, but let's keep moving. Let's keep journeying. God will be with us and he will finish the good work he's begun in the day when we are with him together. Well, I can tell you, Dad, that your example to your sons, to your daughters-in-laws, and to all of your grandchildren is priceless. How you love mom and and the the life that you lead, we see. And it's an example for all of us to to see. And so uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We will see you all next week, Saturday, for Song of Songs Experience. It'll be the last of this four-part series. And uh, be praying that we can convince Dr. Crabb to maybe continue to do some of these these chats. We would uh, love for him to continue to do that with us. So uh, hopefully he'll be willing to do some of that. So thank you guys. Have a great weekend. God bless you. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.